This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Members of the group Acorn will be marching on Melbourne Avenue today to highlight substandard living conditions in apartments. This has been an ongoing issue in Hamilton. Uh, They are also calling on the city to revamp the property standard laws. To talk more about all of this, Mike Wood is with us from Acorn and on the line now. Mike, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Can you tell everybody what Acorn is, Mike? Yes, it's a social justice group of low to moderate income uh, individuals and families trying to make change for the better. And what is going on this afternoon? Uh, we're having a, a rally action on Melvin Avenue, starting from Woodward Melvin, marching down to Parkdale and Melvin, uh, regarding the low to big high-rise buildings. We've been in there, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, um, repairs that have been needing to be done for a long time. Uh, and uh, we've had property standards into those buildings, uh, and they've actually failed um, when it comes to trying to get things done. Uh, they got orders up. They were supposed to be in uh, around the beginning of June to do the work themselves, but nobody's been there yet, and tenants are still waiting for things to be done. Uh, obviously, these are this, this is something that we've heard about for a while, and as you mentioned, the steps that you've taken to, to get to where you are, uh, what sort of recourse does the average tenant have in this sort of situation? What can the average tenant do? Well, I mean, we've even heard we've even heard of some, you know, holding back rent or having rent strikes, this sort of thing. I mean, what recourse do they have? Uh, there's not very much, actually. If they call property standards or do any other uh, phone calls out with the city, the city sends the property standards out to do an inspection. But uh, what we find is the property standards is actually failing. Uh, recently, we called a property standards inspector into a rental on King Street, and they came back to us saying that they c- cannot enforce appliances to be repaired or fixed. Uh, that's not on their list. There's uh, other issues, too, with cosmetic. Uh, you know, the, if the wall's been plastered everywhere, they don't uh, force to have that stuff done either. Uh, there's quite a few things that actually fail when it comes to the system. And then property standards itself, it, uh, they've... They come out, they issue an order, the landlord, if they don't comply, they're supposed to uh, come in with contractors, do the work themselves, and then put it on the property tax at the end of the year. But we find that most cases, uh, the landlords are getting away with things, they're able to appeal, drag it on, and the the system just keeps going and going. And in in the end, the tenants are the ones that are uh, getting the brunt of everything and nothing's being done. Um. Mike, obviously Hamilton's going through a transition now. For all intents and purposes, uh, purposes, things are supposed to be getting better. Why isn't this being focused on? Is this a good time for this? I definitely think it is a perfect time for this. Uh, elections are coming up. Uh, you know, city councilors have to pay more attention to each ward when it comes to these things. And uh, really, when it comes down to it, if we have a system that's failing us, then, you know, what is it they're really for? And then the tenants don't really have nowhere else to go to uh, try and make it get a decision done on the on the issues that are going on. We see high rise buildings where some tenants have been without smoke detectors for ten years, uh, uh, major repairs, and the whole list goes on mold and everything else. So you know, it's it's the tenants that have to live like this for extensive time and frustration levels uh, end up rising and with with everything going on in the city now the, the the city needs to step up and do their job 
there is a rental housing subcommittee that uh, decides around this kind of stuff. They've been going since 2012 or 13, but nothing has been done at that meeting. It just seems to be the the same meetings that go on and on, and nothing's ever decided. They they don't uh, they don't get anywhere with the meeting. So we've been trying to hold them accountable, and we're going to the meetings trying to make sure that uh, they understand to the extent of how much people are suffering. What about the owners? Is it up to the city to hold these owners responsible? Whose job is that? It's up to the city to hold them responsible, but when it comes down to it, we have, uh, they're, they're actually, you know, they're not doing it. Uh, they're, they're, they're ignoring the system. Uh, we have a building right now that's got pro- uh, orders all over the window since April, and uh, the, the, the stuff is still not done. And they were supposed to be in there June 1st to, to complete the work if the landlord didn't uh, comply. And still today, here we are, June 18th, nothing's been done. So when this happens, and just let me understand this, so when this happens uh, and the landlord is, is neglecting something, then the city can go in, get the work done, and then bill the landlord. That's right. Yeah, they can go in and they can build a landlord. They can hire the contractors to come in and get the work done. But what we find is that it's, uh, it's not being done. It's actually being dragged on and on. Uh, you know, so when it comes down to it, the system itself is failing completely. So what needs to be done, especially during this important time, Mike? How do you move this forward? How do you move the discussion forward? Well, we, we keep engaging with tenants and we keep engaging with City Hall and the rental subcommittee. We've, we've talked to city councilors about it, uh, you know, and um, there is an understanding around the table that there's issues. But uh, the rental house subcommittee meeting, like I said, it's uh, gone nowhere as of yet. Uh, they they really haven't done much, and uh, we're calling them out to step up and make the right decision because nobody should really have to live like this. Well, especially when times are supposed to be better, especially when times are supposed to be good for this city. That's right. Uh, when when times are supposed to be good, they say the city's improving. We're you know they're doing a lot of work. Well, what about the people who are living in the city, supporting the communities, and uh, you know you know, there's they're the ones that have to come back home and uh, deal with the frustration levels and uh, deal with the uh, you know the repairs, the constant need of things to be done. How and, how how successful is the city in getting money back out of these landlords for those repairs? Because my guess is the city's not going to you know probably doesn't want to spend the money on something if they don't feel they're not going to get it back from the landlord. Well, is, is that I mean, what's, is that what happens? Uh, that I'm not sure, but I mean I know that uh, you know it's just like a homeowner. If a homeowner was not doing something with their home, the city will come in and say you know you got to right. do something like clean your yard up or your or cut your grass, keep it to maintained. Mm-hmm. They can go in and give those people fines, or 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 go in and actually do the work and bill the land, the owner of the home. So why couldn't why shouldn't it work with uh, with uh, landlords who own buildings as well? Mm. It, it should be the same way. It it shouldn't be a toss up of who gets uh, treated uh, differently here. It should be a fair, uh, equal system. Uh, this obviously ongoing problem, is it worse now or are you just trying to get more attention now because of a election coming up and, you know, as we mentioned, times are, are relatively good for the city? No, it's definitely worse now. I mean, I go into places all the time when I get phone calls and the stuff that I see, it's uh, it's it's 
quite disgusting. I mean, uh, you know, you go in, you see electrical lights uh, hanging uh, from the wiring right through the ceiling. Uh, there's, you know, holes everywhere, uh, mold, you name it. There's lots of repair issues, and I see it every day when I get calls, and I go in and I look at these places, and it, it it's gotten to the point that, you know, everywhere I go, it's it's not getting any better. I see the same thing, and it's just getting worse. What about rental properties? I mean, it doesn't seem like they're making any more. They're building any more of this. What is what is the, the you know that market like at this point? What does it need? Well, I mean, I believe the rental market is out there, and I believe it it, it is still strong. I mean, uh, as we speak right now, uh, when people are looking for places to rent, uh, the percentage is quite low trying to find a place that's available because uh, so many people are are you know, living in these places and there's not enough availability. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's always available, you know, need for availability of rentals as well as of course, affordable housing as well in the mix of it. But, uh, I don't, I don't see a decline in, uh, rentals that are needed. It's definitely needed for sure. Uh, but landlords, there doesn't seem to be a lot of people lining up to build apartment buildings though. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, they're using the excuse, well, if we get these laws passed, we're not going to be able to build buildings. Well, they're already not doing that. It's, it's got nothing to do with that. They that's, they use a strategy, and they try to use whatever they can to say, well, these laws are going to stop us from building, but it, it's not the case at all. They, they, they're always looking for uh, the best way that's affordable for them when it comes down to building new buildings. But um, overall, it's, you know, uh, we got a lot of people that are coming into the city and investing in building properties now, and I'm sure at City Hall there's a lot of uh, um, paperwork that's been submitted that uh, of new buildings. But in in we want to make sure that those standards are going to be kept up. So, who are you hoping uh, in attendance uh, for the rally this afternoon? Uh, we got tenants from different buildings on Melbourne that are going to be coming out for the uh, for the rally. Um, in support of the buildings to be, uh, for the work to be done on the buildings. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, we've talked to quite a few tenants in different buildings and they're all having the same issues. Uh, some are better than others, but some are worse. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a mix, but, uh, they're going to be coming out and they're going to be joining in. So if there's a tenant out there listening who has issues like this, what should they do? I mean, what is the proper process? Well, the proper process is usually they they usually call, you know, first you let the landlord know what's going on, if there's uh, repairs we need, then if they're not going to go through it, then they can go through property standards for repair issues. But at the city hall, there's different departments for different things. So if it's electrical, you got to call ESA. If it's property standards for repairs, you got to call property standards. If it's to do with pests, you got to call the health uh Department at City Hall, so there's a few departments that are there. But we again, we find that this is uh, uh, failing the system itself. This issue certainly seems to be getting a lot of attention, Mike. Where do you think this rally is going to go? Well, we're hoping that City Hall is going to see, uh, you know, the issues that are actually going on and uh, understand that uh, you know that this is actually happening. And uh, I believe they. They're starting to see it slowly, uh, but we're going to keep working hard over the next so many months, bringing um, evidence uh, forward uh, showing that the uh, current system is failing. Um, but we're hoping that we're going to get this uh, passed with City Hall and make things better for renters. What improvements can they make at City Hall? What can they do? 
Well, they can, uh, you know, they can bring in. We could, we're wanting rent safe, which is one of the the newer laws we want, which is uh, bringing the property standards codes up up to par and uh, making sure the inspectors go out uh, on the annual and make sure that the inspections are being done and that landlords are being held accountable. Uh, what do you consider a success after this rally, Mike? Well, it's always a success that we find that tenants are standing up and voicing their opinion because it makes it more known to the city that the issue is happening all over and it's not isolated. So we're going to continue on doing this and making sure that City Hall uh, does see what we are bringing forward. And we've already brought photos, uh, video evidence to the meetings and showing the city that uh, the issues are bad. Is there a website we can go to, Mike, to find out more? Uh, yeah, uh, for for the our website, it's uh, www.acorncanada.org. And for the city uh, of hamilton.ca, for you if you need to look up anything to do with the bylaws. All right, this is the March on Melvin happening today at uh, 2.30. It is starting at Melvin and Woodward Avenue moving towards Parkdale. Mike, uh, Mike Wood has been with us from Acorn. Mike, thanks for the time and insight on all of this. Good luck. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful one. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The situation at the U.S. border and Mexico is garnering fear and outcry as stories of children being separated from their parents are being shared. Some 2,000 minors are believed to have uh, been separated from their parents. To talk more about all of this, Jackson Proskow is with us, Washington Bureau Chief, Global News, and with us now. Jackson, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hang on a sec. We got him? Jackson, are you there? Do we have Jackson? We don't have ja- Jackson. Are you there? Can you there? hear me now, Scott? Yes, there I can hear you. Okay, we're good. Uh, Jackson, just give us an update. How did we get to where we are now? Yeah, so this was announced as a zero-tolerance policy by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions back at the beginning of May, and they made it clear that this was all about deterring people from coming across the border, uh, specifically uh, to keep them from claiming asylum in the United States. But what sort of happened here since this policy has taken effect and since there's been this tremendous amount of political and international blowback, Suddenly, the Trump administration is trying to pass the buck, and they're basically looking for any excuse on the books to explain uh, what's going on here right now, from blaming Democrats for putting in place laws to saying that they need to enforce laws, neither of which is true. Make no mistake, this was fully announced by the Trump administration as something that they wanted to do. Has So this is designed to be a deterrent. Has there been any proof that this has been a deterrent in any way by separating families, the parents from the kids? Not at all. I mean, you've got to keep in mind a couple of factors here. One is that people who are coming to the U.S. border to claim asylum typically are coming from Central America, and that trip from places like Guatemala and Honduras and Ecuador takes more than a month. So, uh, you know, the chances that word of this new policy would have filtered into those who are making this long journey with literally just the shirts on their back is nearly impossible. Uh, in fact, what we're seeing now is an escalation in detentions of children, and uh, all told there are roughly 11,000 children in the custody of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at the moment, based on the accelerated rate of uh, child separations and detentions, that number could grow to more than 20,000 by the 1st of August if this keeps up with its current pace. So this has been building since this was announced back in May. This has been building since for several weeks now. 
Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, you talk about uh, the 11,000 that are in custody right now. About 70% of them had shown up at the border as unaccompanied minors. They were there by themselves. But the remainder, the fastest growing number, the 2,000 that you referenced, are children who came with parents and have now been forcibly separated under this new policy. Their parents are being held in custody in one location. They're being held in another location. And it's not clear if, if, when, or how they'll be reunited. Uh, it sounds like this policy was not thought through before implementation. Sounds good on paper, but here's the reality. Uh, is that accurate? Actually, I'd argue it was completely thought through before implementation. Uh, you had John Kelly, who's currently the president's chief of staff, but used to be the director of Homeland Security, uh, musing about this policy last year, saying this was something they might look at doing. Uh, and again, the fact that this was fully announced and uh, done as a, a perf- perfectly intentional move. Uh, you know, the hardline anti- anti-immigration groups within the Trump administration have no problem with this. They're quite happy with this message getting out there. Uh, you know, they want us to see those pictures of these detention centers and of children being held in cages because they want those images to get back to the people who are trying to make their way to the United States to keep them from coming here in the first place. Yeah, but you know, as I've heard, I've talked to many uh, immigration lawyers, you know, them being in that country, sitting in that cage is still better than where they came from. Uh, Yeah, and I think that's the miscalculation perhaps here. Um, And I think there's a a recognition that the the tide of people coming to the U.S. is not going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, In fact, they're busy building tent cities at military bases right now to house up to 5,000 migrant children. So I think they're fully aware that this isn't going to slow down. This is the sort of thing, these images are the sort of images that can bring down a politician. How does Trump stay ahead of this? Where does this go? Yeah, so actually two polls out in the U.S. today on that point that say this policy has 27% approval. That's pretty abysmal, and that might explain why the president and those close to him are now trying to explain this away uh, as being the fault of Democrats or uh, Congress as a whole for not passing immigration reform. But they can't escape the fact that they announced this with great fanfare, and in fact, while the president might try and blame other people, his own attorney general is out there cheerleading this cause of separating children from their parents and saying it's something that will work to deter more people from coming to the U.S. Obviously, this is a problem all over the world. How do we stop the greater picture? How do we keep people in their own countries improving life there? I, I mean, it seems that the tide it has changed and everyone is, is fleeing their countries to go somewhere else. How do we stop this problem from, on a worldwide basis? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer because the factors, depending on where you're looking, are so very different. I mean, uh, most of the migrants who are coming to the U.S., as I mentioned, are coming from Central America right now. They're facing gang violence and uh, uh, threats of murder and abysmal conditions and organized crime in their home countries, and that's why they're leaving. But if you take Central America out of the picture, you've got a huge migration crisis taking place in South America. You've got more than a million people who've been displaced from Venezuela amidst that country's collapse economy. You've got people leaving Colombia, and on and on it goes, and the factors are different in every single case. You've got people fleeing natural disasters and poverty in Haiti. I mean, there's no, there's one, there's no catch-all solution. Hmm, good point. Uh, talk about this Texas facility. What happens to these people? I mean, as you mentioned, over the summer months, this is only going to grow. Yeah, so uh, there's a number of facilities out there right now. In fact, there's more than 100 facilities out there specifically for displaced children. Um, the, the facility I think you're referring to is the one where we saw the images overnight of yeah. people quite literally being held in cages, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so this is one of those processing facilities where what happens if uh, people cross the border illegally, not at a border crossing point, and then try to claim asylum. They're brought into this, this warehouse uh, that can essentially hold about 1,500 people, and then they're divided into four different what are called pods, which are actually chain-link cages, and they're split up, men, women, boys and girls, uh, and held there and then sent off for processing uh, or separation from their parents. Um, you know, I think we should be clear that this zero-tolerance policy, what it means in reality is that the U.S. is saying that anyone who crosses the border illegally and then tries to claim asylum is actually sent for prosecution, for criminal prosecution. And mm. because of that, that's why the families are being split up, because there are no jails, there is no uh, legal system to keep the family unit together when the parents are being prosecuted with a crime. So that's why the children are being set off to uh, a different location. In fact, the courts have ruled here in the past that uh, uh, the children have to be separated from parents when parents are being prosecuted for a crime. Uh, last question, Jackson. How They're experiencing the same thing, I guess, that what we're experiencing over here with people going through the fence. Is it any different? Uh, it's different only in the sense that there's uh, a vastly larger number of people who are coming into the United States right now. And right. again, because of the zero-tolerance policy, they're not housing a family unit together when they come in and are awaiting their asylum claim. They're, they're prosecuting them for a criminal offense of crossing the border illegally, and that's the new part here. Mm. Jackson Proskow has been with us, Washington Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight to hear more on this. Jackson, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Who makes up Generation Z, or is it Z? We're in Canada. It's Z. And, and, and how do they compare to millennials? And, and frankly, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm having a hard time keeping up to all this. Uh, in case you're wondering or keeping score, Generation Z makes up roughly about 17% of the population. From, uh, this according to StatsCan, and those that are born the, uh, between the years of 1995 and 2005, making the youngest about 13 and the oldest around 23. Although some may argue that it's a year or two on either side of that. Uh, and then some will say we can't categorize it yet because it hasn't finished growing. Let's bring in Gary Derenfeld, social worker, yoursocialworker.com to find out more. He's with us now. Gary, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, good to be with you again, Scott. Before we break down the Zeds, why uh, why are we so uh, uh, against the the millennials? Why do we pick on them so much? Is this is this any different than any other generation gap, or is this one just more identifiable because it has a name? Huh. Well, first of all, let, let, let's understand these generations. So, in each era, there's been something socially, politically, technologically, industrial that is I, that is um, identified a period of time, and we look at the persons who were reaching adulthood or or who were born into those periods of time, and we say, you know what? As a result of that period of time, there's certain characteristics in common with these people. So. You know, I'm 62 years of age. I remember my uh, grandparents, how thrifty they were. Uh, they, they would have literally five different bags of sugar in case there was a run on sugar. Yeah. But, but they came from the Depression. Yep. So each generation has its own thing associated with it. So the millennials, <clears throat> these are the children of the boomers. Um, some would say that they are spoiled that they haven't quite gotten their act together because, 
You know, they may have been handed things on a silver platter. They didn't have to work the same for it. The and last generation got, before the bubble broke. Pardon me? The last generation before the bubble burst. Would that be That's like it. Yeah. And, you know, their parents, people like me, we have planned for our retirement. We're in pretty good shape. You know, are these kids who are now in their 30s, maybe 40s, are they in the same shape? How has the economy affected them? And, and what are their attitudes and values? And now we've got this Generation Z. Well, what the heck is that? These are kids who have grown up on a full diet of technology. Yeah. Um, so when I look at technology, I'm, I'm new to this in a sense. I didn't grow up with it. I had to grow into it. Kids these days, they grow up with it. It is, it is like breathing. It is like water. Yeah. They, th there's no thinking. They are just, it is part of them. And they're also in an era where we as parents have never been less available. Mm. And so what is the impact of kids growing up on a diet of technology in the absence of parents? So, you know, these are kids who rely on technology for everything and are so adept at it that as I'm still trying to pose the question, they've got 15 answers. Mm. And they don't even need me as the parent to do that. Is this the largest generation gap we've seen in time? Because you, you figure the Internet and, you know, you try to compare that to other things in history, like the automobile, electricity. I mean, when you look at this, not only has it changed the generation, it's made the generation that's usually not as wise yet, still, yeah. wet, still wet behind the ears. They're the experts now. This is a huge gap. You know, I think the largest gap has been with the Industrial Revolution yeah, when we point. went from this agricultural yeah. um, lifestyle to this industry lifestyle. That would probably be as great as what we're experiencing now. I bet you even electricity or the automobile didn't change things as much as that or, they, or, or say this. Would that be accurate, do you think? I would have to agree with that. And now with this new technology, jobs are becoming obsolete you know, Microsoft announced uh, a week or so ago this this thing with Walmart that we're not going to need uh, cashiers whatsoever. Yeah. yeah, that's some eight hundred thousand jobs, by the way, in the U.S. alone. That isn't chump change when it comes to that section of the economy. So the other thing for our Generation Z is they are going to see a tough time in the job market, the result of automation, because jobs that, that, that you and I can think of today are going to be gone tomorrow. Hmm. That being said, they say, though, that Generation Z or Z will be more uh, proficient and, and efficient simply because they grew up with parents who went through the recession and they remember what that was like. So whereas perhaps millennials were a little bit more spoiled and enjoyed the fruits of the labors, um, Generation Z understands and is preparing for life maybe not as bright as is what first thought. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, the other thing that I see with Generation Z, um, you know, even when we're in the same room together, we're all looking at our phones. And so this is a generation that is far less connected socially 
uh, as well. And we are seeing more anxiety in this generation than we've seen in any previous generation. Well, this study that, uh, and, and we're, I'm getting this from Generation Z, Make Room for Canada's Connected, Open and Optimistic Generation. This is uh, a first story of an eight-part series uh, that Global News is running. And there's an interesting uh, quote from one of the kids, kids, one of the uh, young adults here that says they basically have two personas, the real one and then the social media one, <laughs> which, you know, is true. They also say that, uh, but as far as finances, uh, they're driven by two things, their parents telling them to be more self-reliant and seeing their parents and family go through a session, uh, sorry, a recession. So perhaps not as much as snowflakes as millennials, although I hate to use that description, but less of that than, say, a millennial would be described? Well, I'm not seeing them as self-reliant as what is portrayed in that article, because I did give it a read-through as well. Um, they are having these smartphones gifted to them at no expense to their own. Mm. They don't need to pay the plan that costs some 50 to 75 bucks a month uh, in order to carry it. My experience is that they're quite out of touch financially, and um, it's hard to get them into part-time jobs to gain that financial acumen. acumen ac- oh. Acumen. <laughs> Thank you. That... You know, these are also kids, because the parents' lack of availability, be it separated parents and or two-income families, it's, it's not because parents don't want to be there, but structurally, it's hard to be there. We have more parents spoiling their kids, in a sense, giving them things in order to assuage their guilt for their own lack of availability. Yeah, you see that a lot with divorced parents, too, unfortunately. It's just, you know, each one's trying to be the hero, right? Well, yeah, and, and just you can have great parents, but both are, have to work hard and long in order to make ends meet in this mm-hmm. economy, and it still leaves that child to their own devices, literally and figuratively. So uh, I, uh, I have some concerns about this generation. My uh, caseload as a social worker is uh, more filled these days by uh, anxious young persons, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's some of the downside to this. The upside, the upside is these are kids who can multitask like it's nobody's business. Yeah. So as they're talking to me, they're making a purchase there. They're, they're by the way, very savvy purchasers. Um, that is a tremendous and, strength that and, they and a, can. And again, so, that they attribute that to perhaps the parents growing up through tougher times than, say, the millennials. You know, I don't know if it's the tougher times. You're not buying or, into that, are you, Gary? You're no, not buying I'm this. not, because these are, these are the kids who will review everything before making that final purchase. Yeah. And so they are savvy that way. These are also the kids who, you know, they're not into jewelry. They're not into things. They're more into experiences. So these are the kids who will value uh, the family vacation more than well, apart from their smartphone, more than other things that could be purchased for them. There's some really unique differences all because of technology mm. and because we as parents are so harried trying to make ends meet. Uh, what can Generation Z learn from millennials? <laughs> what could Generation Z learn Now, you're from laughing them? as if that's hopeless. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> well... That's not, How many of us on, want Gary. to learn from our elders? So, uh, you know, but what can they learn? Uh, put the device down from time to time 
and look into a person's eyes and chat with them directly. Mm-hmm. Um, the conversation is becoming a lost skill. You know, whereas our kids, you know, I, I'm thinking you're around my age. I'm 62. Uh, are you around my age? I'm a little younger, but, you know. Okay. Whereas our, Thanks you know, for reminding kids, me, Gary, that I'm approaching that big number. <laughs> <laughs> our kids would socialize. They'd go out drinking. They'd, they'd get over to a friend's. And uh, they'd be together in groups. Uh, Generation Z, they're not doing that. Mm. They're hanging out onesies, twosies, or maybe zero, but they're all connected, you know, via social media to be in touch with each other. So we're not seeing, you know, we're not hearing the stories that we would have heard, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago about the partying. Yeah. Yeah, that's very very true. It's a very different world, pros and cons. Very true. Uh, It's difficult for me because I'm a guy in my mid-50s, but I have Generation Z kids. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a gap there that's bigger than than you know the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so, but uh, you know, I'm not sure. In retrospect, like sometimes I think, oh, you know, I, you know, we always question our life's decisions. I should have done it sooner. But on the other hand, I, I think that may be a benefit to them as well. Although we may have a hard time understanding each other, I think in the end it may be an advantage. <laughs> They're going to look at you or look at me the same way and think we are so out of it. Oh, yeah. Um, they laugh all the time. It's just, um, you know, what do you do? That's right. Uh, we're not as adept at using the electronic tools as are they and communicating through them and doing six ways from Sunday all at the same time. So we look really um, unfit. You know what, though? Awkward. Here, here's, but, and you're, you're absolutely right. But here's the scenario. My 15-year-old daughter, soon to turn 16, just got a part-time job. And she was talking to her boss, and we were sitting at the dinner table, and she was telling us the story of how she took – there was a couple of key things that stood out for him. Number one was after the interview, she wrote him a thank you note, and then she followed up with a telephone call and came in to see him. Uh, to talk about what her chances were. And she asked, and he asked her where she learned that, and she said, my parents, they taught me to be prepared before I go into something, and da-da-da. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm screaming this thing, this, this stuff at the top of my lungs, and you swear it's just going in one ear and out the other. And now all of a sudden you, oh, my goodness, <laughs> something, actually, something actually seeped in. But it was interesting what... What impressed him was that face-to-face, that personal encounter. That's what set her apart in his eyes. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, bravo to you. You've got some good kids. And there's the message. There's the takeaway for the people listening in to us, that we, we only lose our influence with, with our own children when we abdicate, when we no longer try. And so even when we don't think we're making an impact, it's still important for us to give our kids hmm. those kinds of messages. You know, wear clean underwear, use please and thank you, right? Hug them when they won't hug you. <laughs> exactly. Be- because, you know, they, we still are influential. Yeah. And it still makes a difference in this generation. And I think good manners never goes out of style. So uh, do you feel optimistic about Generation Z? Because ye- I'm not sure you're there. Right. Uh, you know what? I'm a glass half full anyways. I, I was right. born optimistic. 
So yes, I do feel uh, optimistic about Generation Z. This is also uh, a group that, because they are more internet savvy and always connected, I'm hoping that they're going to be more politically aware. This is a group that does think more inclusively. This is a group that has really broken down social uh, barriers. Uh, this is a, a group that, that uh, LGBTQ, mm. uh, they know what it all stands for, yeah. quite frankly. And so from a social perspective, this is a group that is more advanced, from my perspective anyways, than any other generation uh, before them. And that leads to tremendous optimism uh, to me. This is a group that will not tolerate the harms and the hurts that we see going on uh, across the USA these days with Trump in place, and who knows what will happen here in Canada. Gary Derenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com, uh, to find out more and talking about a uh, series that Global is running right now on Generation Z. Where I'm actually getting people arguing with me whether it's Generation Z or Z. Really? <laughs> <laughs> We're Canadian, it's Z. <laughs> All right, thanks, Gary, as always. Much appreciated. All the best. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.